Today's guest on the podcast is Felix Nash from the Fine Cider Company. He takes us through the history of cider, through its rise and fall from grace, through to the present age. We taste four of the ciders from his portfolio, and we look ahead to his summer tasting. Enjoy. I'm Felix Nash. Uh, I suppose about four years ago now, I set up the Fine Cider Company, uh, based over in East London. I always, I always describe it to people as quite a long, slow story. I suppose cider isn't a world um, where you can drop in, you know, at, at the high level on the refined side. You know, it doesn't really exist. It's been a lot of discovering it, making it up as you go along. Um, it was a, even even the first elements. There was no real kind of one experience that completely changed things you know there was a couple of bottles but the way it really happened was um, out in Herefordshire Herefordshire is historically and in the present day just one of the best cider regions in the world you could liken it to some of the best wine regions by the specificity and the locality of its fruit and the qualities and that all hinges around the tannins and elements like uh, elements like the history of the invention of Veranglais bottle glass, the varieties, the the sheer sheer combination of all those factors. Um, I had a little period of time between school and university where I went to study fine art down in Falmouth in Cornwall, uh, just working as a labourer for a building firm. Um, wasn't anything complicated uh moving stuff sweeping stuff lots of wonderfully banal things but at least your mind was your own um i picked up a couple of skills from it i suppose and after university took on the lease on the floor of a building with my brother here in london uh that we're so he sat on the roof of at the moment uh i could apply some of those skills to it i did the plastering when we knocked down the internal walls rebuilt them uh he did the electrics and this was all before I even got involved in the cider side of things. I've always had a an interest, I suppose, albeit distant in food and drink. Um, I'd never necessarily planned for a career in it, but uh, fine art leaves you pretty open. So um, I uh, started doing a little bit of work, particularly lime rendering on a cottage that my parents got up in Herefordshire. Uh, my dad's an architect. It was, you know, doing over a, a fairly simple place. Um, I had a bit of time staying in bursts across a winter in a little Tupperware box of a caravan outside there. And that's when really started to discover some of the ciders. There was a local wine merchant. I think it was around the time that the sadly now closed Three Counties Cider and Perry shop was opening up. And slightly actually as a sort of back and forth with my dad even... Um, I would be up there, you know, knowing us about a bit of time, I'd work quite hard, I'd see what food I could find, you could get wonderful Hereford beef, incredible asparagus, all sorts, although not necessarily at that time of year, but um, discovering some of these bottles and then a little bit of a back and forth really my dad of him discovering other things led to the curiosity, saying I did not know how good some of these things can be. It's really the last sort of 15 or so years that you have the real kind of the real key people the people like Tom Oliver who have uh, far away from the lights of London 
been in isolation from from many support structures from uh, kind of enough of an ability to sell at a high enough level and a high enough price somehow managed to not compromise and keep digging deeper digging through the history of cider that's really had i'd say sort of the biggest fall from grace of of what i know across the wider spectrum of alcohol it's i mean almost almost undisputably one of the most industrialized alcohols today something to call something cider in britain today only needs to be 35 percent apple juice doesn't have to be made with cider apples that can even be concentrate so you could make something with 35 percent chinese dessert apple concentrate and the remaining 65 percent could be water caramels you know if if you bought a, a carton of grape juice from tesco's and made wine of it you could probably legally call that cider of it the equivalent and yet imagine the gulf then that would exist between that and the qualities that exist in wine the locality the nuance um and since then these things have all been strengthened for me when i dug into the history side of it you know i decided to test some of the ciders and perries found in herefordshire um at some sort of supper club things used to do here and see how they went down see what people liked it was a lot of layers of proof of concept um uh, but then it was all really reinforced when i discovered some of the history from uh the real 17th 18th century heyday when um the best cider and perries were known as the native wine of England, a title given by the diarist, arrival of Samuel Pepys, John Evelyn. And the best things, predominantly made in Herefordshire and Devon, from, again, specific known cider apple varieties with names just like the, the, the grapes of wine. Um, and I saw somewhere that we scroll a little over 360 in, in Britain that were known, you know, again, named, named varieties with specific properties that you don't really eat or cook with. You just make cider and perry with. Um, it, was the era, it was the era where you had uh, cider flutes. There's a big old box of them, uh, you know, behind, behind, I think, Perspex at the Cider Museum in Hereford of diamond etched and engraved 18th century cider flutes you know the the best things could be 60 75 times the cost of the common cider and they were prized even in the london kind of gentlemen's clubs particularly single varieties among the the lords like lord scudamore of herefordshire who was one of the real uh, leading lights in that era other people like sir kenom digby who was involved in the invention of their glaze and uh, one of the first people in in britain in wider parts of europe actually in the modern era credited with using cork to seal a bottle and it's really really fascinating knowing what it once was and uh, that was a real affirmation of the, p- the potential and the possibilities so then it became a lot of layers of, of proof of concept, working with initially Tom Oliver, trying to re, uh, reimagine how these things are shown and, and presented such that the perception could then hopefully change. We got a load of half champagne bottles from um, uh, an importer, bought them in from France, uh, did a batch of just a few things. And I'd never worked in, in alcohol or even in sales before. I went out trying to sell things. The first first i mean it was really really scary i don't really have the personality who's like the traditional brash kind of salesperson image and i remember even cold calling uh, people i still know today like uh charlie Mello, who runs the wonderful laughing heart dropping into elliot's on uh, uh just completely unannounced borough market 
I wanted to drop a bottle and then just get the hell out of there. And he was there and said, great, let's taste it. So I sort of nervously sat there and I still supply them to this day. Um, and he's a wonderful friend. So um, it's it's been many, many layers of proof of concept. Now I don't get involved in that side, but for maybe a third of the makers I work with, we've redesigned or done new labels. Uh, and it's just been layer upon layer of seeing how far it can go in terms of quality and they've been incredibly supportive wonderful places for that restaurants like Lyle's um, chefs like Jackson Boxer Brunswick House and uh, the newly opened St Leonard's mm-hmm. who by the way have a, a wonderful list of things uh, things already um, and uh, we're now reaching kind of an interesting point it's it's I think the proof is definitely there of the concept we're able to focus a lot more on large bottles there's a bit of an irony for cider that it is seen as a long drink as a pint kind of thing and and actually i think there's a there's a report a mintel report of 2012 more adult drinkers in britain drink cider than drink lager Um, but the volume is still a hell of a lot less because most things are sugary sweet sparkling Uh, you can't have more than one or two we do deal in things that are to be savored to be paired to have a place on the table again in that native wine of uh, wine of england kind of manner and so now that's the interesting challenge to say how do people access these things come across them how do makers convey all of the complexities of their making from uh the number of years that they age these things often the specificity of the way that they approach things again as a reference to wine most of the makers we work with work with wild yeasts you know you are talking the risk and the uncertainties of that but also the complexities that can result um as i've mentioned before that you know even even basic practicalities you can crush a grape with your feet but an apple you have to grind up first uh, you even get methods like keeving which i wrote over a little piece for Raw Wine Fair on last year, which you don't even do in wine. In some ways, it's like the opposite of battage or uh, opposite principle, and it's done a lot in, in, in Normandy. It's also known as Normandy method. And on northern French ciders, they retain some of the natural fruit sugars that are done in this way. Um, in the, I guess in the wider view, I always, I always think that cider is going to be a really slow one. It's... Um, if there's a sort of wider counter-industrial thing going on in in alcohol in food and drink as a whole mm-hmm. beer and gin have been pretty fast they're inherently city drinks they can be made at their best by wonderful wonderful places one of some of the wonderful breweries we have here in london in a city you can have a tap room people are there on your doorstep cider and maybe this is maybe this comes across to why we're doing a podcast if we look at it, we can say really is wine. It's made, it's not brewed. It's made in the same manner as wine. Um, it's, you know, it's apple wine, if you will. Um, it's taking fruit sugars, the same processes. It doesn't get to the same levels of alcohol predominantly, um, but everything else is pretty akin. Um, and um, in- inherent with that, just like with wine, the best wines being made usually at the vineyard with such understanding of locality and such variation is true of cider the best ciders are made in the countryside as well you know close to the orchards you get regional variation that very few people would know of Uh, a good description of this i suppose that most people might well know is the difference between westerns and aspals yeah uh the uh east to the west even in our small country um you do not get the same 
qualities and varieties of fruit growing across the east coast they are closer to the eating and dessert apples they will always be lighter in color because they have a less lower tannin content which is, is just like cutting open an apple and it goes brown is a huge factor in then the color of a cider herefordshire uh for example and something would taste uh really wonderfully dark amber tones it's through the the, the level of tannins um westerns yes is is is, is less that sort of light acid kind of thing, more the the, 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 the nod towards the tannins. Um, so you get the huge, huge, huge variation. So that also will be a really interesting factor yeah, down the line. So, I mean, that is, you know, undoubtedly, you know, the most in-depth history and, and context that you're giving here to cider. And uh, as I've just said to you just now, even, you know, I think because I don't cover cider so often, I, I feel it's great and I'm very happy to go into that depth. And and because of that, because I don't cover cider every week, um, I'd actually just like to unpick a little bit of, I guess, the missing part of the story, which is the, the downfall. So you, you didn't really talk too much about, I guess, really, yeah, what were the forces that led to this, you know, substance, you know, that you said was the well, there was the wine of England to falling out of favour and, and, you know, I guess you're part of its renaissance. So, yeah, talk, can you talk a bit about the, the fall from grace? So I, I have a book actually just downstairs um, among many, many different things that is uh, a bit of a history of cider. And the last third of it is almost entirely taken up with buyouts and mergers. Sort of since the Second World War, particularly in that really big business era of the 70s and 80s, uh, you have... I mean, you have the real onslaught of the likes of Bulmers then. You can see interesting signs of this again at the Cider Museum up in Herefordshire. You see posters from an array of companies that no one will have heard of now um, from the first part of the century or last century um, showing the sort of champagne cider era. I mean, even Bulmers actually made champagne cider uh, until the 1970s. Uh, in the 1920s, it'd be shipped as far as New York. It was aged for a minimum of a year and a half. The Again, the same museum, actually. You can go down into the cellars there because it's the original site of Bulmers from the 1880s. And I think it has capacity for it's a few million bottles, perhaps, laid down aging at any one point in time. Uh, there's a wonderful new director there who um, showed me some of their archive and they have bottles that uh, have not been opened yet even that are over 100 years old magnums all sorts um, and actually supposedly without having 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 tasted it back at the time in its prime what they did once make could have been actually very very good you know um, it, this is yeah, even the likes, I say, you know, the idea of telling someone that Bulmers did a champagne cider that was actually meant to be very good and would be shipped across the Atlantic is, is quite intriguing. And that's from 1880s onwards, you know. You, you have a bit of a checkered history relative to things like how much wine is being, you know, imported relative to modernization of wine, those other factors. Um, but even in recent history, you had some pretty, you know, fascinating high... Well, it's aspiration, really. Um, this is the way I would term a lot of what the makers I work with too is it's it's an aspiration it's a sort of there's a humility that says I want to know how much further things can go you know I think there's also an element of a huge influx then of on the supermarket side things like well you know the 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 recent era with wine things you know and cheaper wine you know probably had a real foothold but yes the real buyout and merger the the legislation that i mentioned earlier which came in actually in the 70s that set 
by you know the the powers that be at the time which were the big big makers something only had to be 35 percent apple juice that sort of set a race to the bottom i suppose and it set a bit more than a you know mass mass produced lager sort of mindset and actually even today it's interesting though, after the, the recent sale of aspals to molson cause um i think of the big six cider brands in britain i believe i'm slightly uh uh, trying to remember on this one, I think only one isn't now owned by a big brewer, you know, which is an interesting, um, interesting point in some ways. It's kind of it shows it's a reflection of the mentality by which cider is often made now. So um, I think it's a combination of those combination of those factors. There's certainly other things that certain mm-hmm. I think people would okay. would cool. point towards. Yeah. Uh, so I've chosen four four bottles, um, two from the great tom oliver who's sort of widely regarded as the best cider maker on earth uh it's one of those situations that uh he's been working away in his at his home county in herefordshire for the last 15 20 years um kind of i mean perfecting the intuition of his craft i suppose it's very much minimal intervention he would almost describe it as naive but it's it's purposefully willfully so with an incredible bit of intuition behind it um it's uh it's amazing his mindset and approach he doesn't just settle on one thing it's a it's an interesting thing when you look at cider makers because there's a huge array of them now i think at a count a year or two ago there were sort of 93 small or craft makers in herefordshire alone and a lot of people will see come across, you know, a small cider maker here in the countryside, there, wherever it might be. And it is a massive minefield. There's only a small contingent who are really working to the top top side of things. You get the odd farm gate kind of farmer version where they might be doing wild yeast, yes, but they haven't got any sense of nuance to it or the aspiration again for it to be as refined and as good as it can. Um, so two bottles from him. The first we're going to begin with is uh, his Kieved uh, Perry Number no. Two. Um, Kieving, as I mentioned, is um, the Normandy method. It relies on the fact that you have a relatively high pectin content in juice, which can flocculate and form pectin gel. Um, you get this quite fascinating process occur with this insider, whereby um, if it occurs or if it's sort of precipitate to occur you get a build-up of this gel on the top of the the raw juices in the in the days and even and particularly in the weeks after the raw juice is pressed uh it's known in northern france as le Le chapeau brun the brown hat and in britain it's traditionally known as the flying lees it is forced up there by, by the bubbles of the first incipient ferment and it can get pretty thick it looks like a kind of raw risen dough or kind of raw sourdough big bubbles in it it contains within it a lot of the nutrient and of course the nutrient is needed as well as the sugars for fermentation and so you then rack off the juices from the middle leaving behind the stuff from the top and the bottom so it's a fairly wasteful process you lose a certain proportion of the the liquid a decent proportion actually and you get a juice that is then low in nutrients it means you have a a juice that will ferment but then naturally stop once it runs out of the nutrient but retains some of the fruit sugars so it doesn't go bone dry that's the key that's why i would describe it in in in, in idea at least as sort of like the opposite of battage with perry largely to do with the the acidity it's incredibly difficult to do tom's one of the few people who seems to do it or be able to do it the varieties themselves make a really big 
different so this is actually is a, a perry rather than a cider you want to begin with some really low low nitrogen fruit and i mean one this was another fact for me in the early days actually realizing on the slightly romantic side i suppose how intriguing it can be perry perry pear trees can be 300 years old you know they can be four stories high they blossom in pure white blossom in uh, in spring uh, tom oliver recently rediscovered the copy peri pear now makes peri from the only known adult tree of it in existence it's a big old tree a good you know two maybe three stories high and um it took a couple of years to identify another maker i worked with a lovely guy named james marsden at greg's pit he has the mother tree of the Greg's Pit Perry Pear. It's 200, 250 years old, four stories high, still reaping fruit. The first ever one to come into existence. Um, and on the, the cider apple side, I mean, it won't be as old. It'd be, you know, up to sort of 150, 180 years. But again, even with that, the, the, by, by DNA, by genetics, all domestic apples, ignoring crab apples, have been traced back by DNA to one original kind of genus. Um, the origin of which is the apple forests of the Tian Shen mountains in Kazakhstan. Uh, the history again is fascinating on this. The, the Silk Road, you know, when uh, seeds, are, seeds are deposited and then another variety will grow because you have to graft to maintain a certain variety. Um, it worked its way into Europe. In the Renaissance in Italy, for example, these wonderful paintings of, of fresh fruits, they were really fascinating in the cultivation and particularly in Venice of varieties. And that's partly then correlates as well, actually, it seems to that 17th, 18th century heyday in Britain, even, you know, kind of pulling on from that things. Are, and it, and it, it correlates in with our, our weather. You know, you have cider apple trees that will blossom um, uh, later in the year, basically. And it means in these more northern climes, they, you know, they can work. They don't grow the fruit necessarily to the, the sugar form or the speed, if you will, of more more southerly um things i suppose there's certain wine comparisons you could look to make here if you look historically for the kind of the romneys whatever else and it, if, if, if a lot of depth of flavor comes from the rate of cell manipulation uh, or multiplication um you know i think that that is a you know is an interesting sort of uh, idea as far as where you get some really wonderful depthful quality fruit in um, in this country yeah so we had the first i think the first taste actually of the Oliver's Key Perry number one last year did a trip in May during blossom season out to visit actually quite likely the specific orchard that this came from and we had some wonderful wonderful customers came along we had again sort of like Jackson Boxer, Fergus Henderson, Trevor Guller of St John um, Alistair Sells of the FT came along and wrote a wonderful little piece about it. And it was really interesting to see the chef's take, the sort of yeah. the provenance side yeah. through to yeah. The, yeah. the alcohol and stood there in the, the barrel rooms of Oliver's, which have huge number of barrels of all kinds of forms and origin from you know, old Calvados, old whiskey, old wine, all sorts. And this was the first thing we drank. So it was about 11, I don't know, 11, 11.30 or something in the morning. As it's keeved, as you don't fully ferment to dry, you retain some of the sugars and you don't get the same level of alcohol. So the alcohol level on it is just down at the 4%. Very, very succulent, very light, 
Uh, the archetypal notes you often get with peri can lean either in the sort of elderflower direction or the slightly grapefruit direction. And one of my favourite peri pairs for a single variety is the thorn peri pair. That tends to be more the grapefruit side of things. Um, this leans slightly more towards, I suppose, the, um, the elderflower kind of uh, succulents and that fruity kind of side. And it is amazing the, the qualities of the natural, natural sugars. You know the difference between that and anything that's back sweet and sweetened or otherwise. So it's a very light thing. It's um, it's a, you know it's it's on the slightly easier drinking drinking side of things, but it's still very very full. It's got a certain delicacy often perry, and yet it's got a complexity to it, which can be really lovely. And the I think the highest accolade given to it was um, a title bestowed by Napoleon Bonaparte, and he partially because of I think the correlation to the invention of Verne's bottle glass, he called it the English Champagne. Well, if you're good like to go, yeah. yeah. On a roll. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be by the end, yeah. Um, so, I guess just as you have the old guard, those makers who've really rediscovered things, who've gone through old literature, who've just across years made all the mistakes you know for last 15 20 years to be as good as they are now like makers like Tom Oliver you have in the last few years the new wave getting going and this is where things are starting to get really interesting um not only does it allow those old school makers to really do what they want to not have to slightly change things and, and you know bottle things in a different format everything else it's also fascinating seeing people who can come at it from anew, taking influence from wine, uh, and really see what they can do. And the one we're tasting at the moment is a really wonderful example of that. A maker named Polly Hilton down in Devon. Uh, her and her husband Matt make some incredible, incredible bottles. They've only been doing it for a, a relatively small number of years, sort of three, four years now, and yet they they do everything in 75cl champagne bottles very small batch making i think last year um ferrer the wonderful michelin restaurant at claridge's bought almost all the stock we had of theirs they put it on the wine flight um and it went went down wonderfully uh the one we're on at the moment is their method traditionnel the champagne method if you will Mm -hmm. riddled disgorged everything and they're, as I say, a really good example of if you if you take the right approach, seeing what's possible. Devon is historically up there with Herefordshire as two of the best counties for the most refined, highest quality things. Uh, the label has this kind of clay red um, uh, kind of gradient line on it, which is a reference to the soils they have. Uh, these wonderful red clay soils, which is also true for a lot of the best uh, region or a lot of Herefordshire. Full stop. To be honest, and they have some incredible varieties to work with. A lot of them, of the 27 varieties that go into this, a good majority of them, they don't know what they are. So um, there are some that they do, local varieties. They have things like the Cornish Long Claw, which is a fascinating kind of acidity to it. And what Polly did was set out that handful of years ago to find what uh, leftover, derelict, remaining orchards she could. She found out that 90 to 95 percent of all the orchards in Devon have disappeared since the Second World War. Um, they've been grubbed up. They've gone. They've not been. The fruit's not been as in demand. Again, all that that big business era. Things really pushed towards Somerset and Devon. Uh, in Herefordshire, sorry. Um, 
they found something like uh, 25 within a five mile radius of her house. She got some, I think it was some old conservation map and went looking. Uh, a good number of them within a mile of a house, which is nice and convenient. Some of them will be a handful of trees in a corner of a field. They'll be over 100 years old. Really wonderful quality from, you know, a a large standard tree, two stories high. All of the all of the water soaking into that from those clay soils is going through the body of the tree. Um, again, a lot of these things aren't aren't certain, but I've I've had ciders or perries from makers, particularly perries, who have fermented in steel, and yet the perry can have a really woody element to it, and you can only presume it's because so much of that liquid is going through a four-story high tree, you know, to get into the fruit. Um, she spent a nice bit of time down she went down to Tuscany spent a nice bit of time in amongst makers of all sorts of different things and it's interesting it's changing now in this country again on that counter-industrial side how much people are looking to work with raw materials not just in the restaurant but in their own terms adding adding value by seeing what they can create you know not just saying you know we have we've made this raw material um she has uh, some good connection down in France with winemakers, spends a nice bit of time down there. So has been able to really approach it with all of that knowledge and take reference as well. This is a key. You get various people coming from wine trying to make cider and it can be really dull. Um, you know, you don't have the same levels of alcohol often. You want to often work with wild yeast and all sorts. So she's taken good reference from a lot of cider as well. And it's a really exciting example of what, what can be done. It makes me really intrigued to know when you have a lot of makers like this, dear god where things can go when styles styles start to solidify um and 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 you know they can they can they can cover their costs first and foremost but uh, when they can really let their 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 talents be known across time so the second bottle we have from oliver's is it's actually a collaboration it's a collaboration between tom oliver and um in my view the best maker in the u.s a guy named ryan burke um, who's in some ways a little bit like Tom's protege. He probably likes to think he's he's uh, <laughs> excelled him now, but um, it's something they've been doing for quite a while. It's uh, a blend called uh, Gold Rush, and this is the number six. So it's the sixth incarnation, if you will, of this blend. Um, of course, for for good quality cider, again, just like wine, you are working uh, season to season. The mass market side of cider working with concentrate works pretty much year round they can ferment something in as little as you know two three weeks uh you're always talking at least the entirety of winter through into the next year for good quality cider um the number five of this and quite possibly this as well had 24 months in oak it's a real blend of full-bodied herefordshire um bittersweet apples and it gives you a very very nice balance between a sort of slight nod of sweetness and acidity that means that's not the sort of overriding factor particularly on the start it's real wild yeast a little bit of the sort of the 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 funk and, the, and wildness of that with a really lovely dry tannic kind of uh, tail to it It's a fairly good example of the the term that's used in wine as well, chewy, where it's got a, quite a body to it. And this does show you what kind of complexities you can get with cider, even at the lower alcohols than wine. 
I think this, uh, yeah, I'm sort of jumping in here because I think this is the, of the first three we've had, this is the one that I, I would term the most gastronomic, you know, it's the one that's most reminding me of food and, uh, yeah, I don't want to insult anybody, but almost like there's there's elements here that reminds me of cheese. There's, there's, there's something really coming through here that I just want to kind of, yeah, I want to explore food and I want to, you know, kind of get, get hungry just uh, taking this down, so. It is an interesting one. You can often get slightly kind of intriguing kind of wash rye notes other things and you know you do when you are working in such a wonderfully natural manner as tom oliver is you will have a huge array of of wild yeast working away there i mean tom always does this talk where he says you know there's a million yeast in my fist and supposedly for for a wild ferment something like um i think it's about three percent of the 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 yeast will come from the flesh of the apple two percent from the skin or, or vice versa i can't quite remember um 95 will be ambient you know just from the environment and you get all sorts you get things that work just for a little bit at the start up to two point something percent alcohol you get your you know the saccharomyces you might latterly get a bit of the bradonomyces other things kicking in depending on what you've got locally um, this as well you know you might you'll get it go through secondary malolactic um but you again i mean you know herefordshire some wonderful cheeses home of neil's yard all sorts of things like this you probably have some similar bacteria working as well so um it's interesting where these boundaries do lie yeah so next we have uh the art of darkness by little pomona so we poured the next one into a decanter to give it some air and it um it's a really interesting zombie. I mean, it's quite a unique one uh, but it shows a side of cider that very few people know. This is the fullest complexities of dry cider. Uh, it's completely still. Often these things, you might even have them at a kind of room temperature, treat them a bit like red wine. We did this with a uh, vintage, Oliver's Vintage, at the trip we did last May. And they, for me, they have a comparison to the sort of, the, the nuance and the complexity of that shift of the modernization of wine i suppose it's no longer looking for the sweet side it's saying what is the greatest complexity we can get through that wonderful kind of natural process of fermentation you have nothing to hide as well there you are not nothing is covered by sweetness by bubbles anything else and this is a i think is also a reflection of a really interesting point we're at these guys are also kind of the new wave last couple of years um working with wonderful quality Herefordshire fruit, coming from a wine background. Uh, James Forbes is the maker and Susanna Forbes. They do some really, really, really interesting things. They work with very much a kind of acid profile influenced by wine, but with very traditional, highly tannic Herefordshire cider fruit. And I think there's likely going to be a shift in cider or, or hopefully in some ways it is the real kind of change in in culture that's when we'll know you know things are really moving to an entirely different direction and still things like this are really intriguing we have a, a small bottle here actually but most of uh most of their things or a lot of their things are a large bottle and we do or we did until we sell out of it actually offer sort of by the glass rate on those large bottles they're a thing that's been fermented for I mean, this was uh, about two and a half years before it was released, actually. It had a year in um, year in tank and then one year in a uh, former whiskey barrel. Uh, it had a wonderful bit of kind of micro-oxygenization from that. It kind of softened and mellowed. And it's made up of 85% Ellis Bitter cider apple, which 
James the maker always says takes a lot of time to give up the goods you know it takes sort of two years to really give up its full depth of flavor uh, there's also I think 9% Harry Masters Jersey and 6% Foxwell and the Foxwell is a really fascinating one it's one of the oldest known cider apples it's sort of 1600 or, or earlier it's by his wonderful description like the Riesling of cider apples it has a high acidity it often shows itself in this kind of rhubarb kind of tartness the juice when it's fresh pressed is a beautiful pink grapefruit kind of tone they work with it wonderfully you I mean you'd notice the difference of one to two percent in a blend and it's a really nice reflection of how much cider apple properties and varieties do vary they hugely hugely vary across the spectrum and um there's more places that we work with wonderful uh, restaurant in Stoke Newington Wanda who their rule of thumb is they start their wine flight with a cider you know it'll change what it is again we mentioned before the um, the bottles from Fine and Foster that were uh, last year across the wine flight at Ferrer a lot of these things really actually at their best fit in a large bottle format you are appreciating having them with food a bit like the last bottle the olivers that we tasted you just start to imagine the things you pair it with and the dry side is particularly true for this you are not having something that's a big sessionable drink it's something that has a lot of depth and a lot of qualities it's something to be kind of savoured so you often get different sort of profiles between nose taste finish everything inside of them you might with white so you get quite a kind of floral kind of um sweetness to this a kind of honeysuckle but also butterscotch kind of side um which really doesn't necessarily correlate then with the taste you know people are very used i suppose to wine with certain things following and uh as i say this is this has got a certain kind of tartness through the taste from the the fox pop side in particular it's one of my favourites, actually, across the last months. It's very, very Moorish. Look at that. It's, it's, it's so very different than the other bottles. The early bottles we had, you know, the slightly more delicate, sweeter side. This, this shows you the full kind of, the full whack, the full nuance and complexity. And you're, I mean, you're, you're seeing the benefit of wild yeasts and of a really wonderful mineral intervention approach. You're only going up to 7% on, on the alcohol side. And for me, that's a really good reflection of ciders at their best are, you know, like a kind of summer wine, a half alcohol wine. Uh, it's amazing that you can get those complexities without going to the alcohols of wine. Uh, and a, a huge part of that, yes, is the, the wild yeast side, the understanding of the varieties. They uh, have really wonderful approach. They categorize their fruit into four categories uh a b c d they only work with the a and b category side of things they they really ensure things are as ripe and as good as they can be when they're made and it's i I think it's it's an area that i'm i'm going to be kind of as humble as i can hope in this in a sense like i don't have a clue but i really hope this is a side that gets much more explored and understood by people particularly in the restaurant side because I think it's the side that in many ways has the most to give you know particularly if you're looking at the wine comparison you have the fullest elements of flavors you have the greatest requirement for skill you have um, huge huge variety region by region if you're working in a dry manner if you're not working with sweetness you know there's always similarities to sweetness to be honest 
and I will be really interested and hopeful that in the next kind of five years um, these things can can be known and appreciated to the extent that you get a nice lot of makers really seeing what they can do because then that's where it gets interesting you know all of the best things it's it's way beyond even small numbers of people when you have um, hundreds of makers working in that way and a lot of the fruit is there I mean Find and Foster is a good example that's neglected orchards people don't maintain and haven't maintained for decades a lot of the, these wonderful wonderful people all across the countryside from things like the March Apple Network and uh, one of the people like Jackie Denman and the people who do Big Apple in Herefordshire who without need for sort of celebrity money everything else turn an interest to these things maintain them keep them they they do actually at the Big Apple they get in harvest time together as many varieties as they can um, in one single place and you know they have um, dozens and dozens of examples of these named varieties that you can you can see and it's amazing seeing you know um, 80 different apple varieties off the side of there in one room seeing how much they vary from uh, tone to colour to size everything and um, that as I say I think is, is where things could get really interesting cool um, a little, little, little summary. Yeah, um, I, I think it, what really stands out for me. Whoa. <laughs> okay. I think what really stands out for me from what you just spoken about was is that whole element of the complexity and the alcohol, and, and it, it certainly, I think you know, taking the consumer perspective it then really makes sense because it ties in absolutely with what's happening on the wine side and and I think it just makes these a um, yeah it makes these a, a nice complement to what's happening in the sort of more natural wine side and the, the kind of the fresher wine styles or you know moving away from I think the sort of the um, the era if you like of parkerism and, and just wanting to have those big juicy heavy wines that you know who was really enjoying drinking you know i think a lot of it was 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 about prestige and because people were saying it was the right thing to have so um i i hope that this helps and i, and I hope that um it helps occupy that same space in the mind of the consumer because i think they're already moving there with wine and if you've got the support of of the community here in london and, and of those restaurants that you work with then I, I think it really gives everybody a an opportunity and it, and it means that you're not starting from a from a steady um point so we're doing a summer tasting it's like a miniature well, a miniature wine fair but obviously just cider um and perry of course yes very very kindly done um with uh the store at uh, 180 the strand coming up the 8th of july it's predominantly trade focused the reason for its existence or its kind of conception was to have a point in the year that these drinks being seasonal can then be tasted to know as is so often the case in wine what that year that season's bottles are like what the highlights from it are to also put a lot of these makers the aspirational truly best makers in a context that's free of your record leagues your boomers whatever else and you know connect the ends it's always been about that for me it's been saying Herefordshire Devon all sorts it's 
a distance away from London. I had the ability of some space in London, an interest in, in food and drink, and the chance to sort of connect the ends. You know, I'm the little little ventricle, if you will. Most of what I know comes from these makers. I've learned it from them. And actually getting everyone together in a room was the focus. And that's when I think the best things will happen. We're going to have uh, the tasting itself and then a number of short talks from a number of makers, like Tom Oliver, like uh, Polly of Find and Foster. And that will go to uh, a depth even, you know, I can't portray in... Um, in a relatively short amount of time to articulate and show how they think and what they do and we are then following up as well we're doing a sort of little event afterwards same day in the evening um, with the uh, Rosary Branch Tavern up in Islington that is going to have a kind of flight of ciders all sorts but also the main point is the proceeds go to charity so sort of East London Homeless Charity Uh, there's a lot of the debate on well, it's not really debate it's sort of kind of obvious but the white cider side of things you know and the legislation everything else and when i speak of the industrialization of cider there's nothing worse than the white cider side of things you know and it's it is inherently a thing that does correlate with a lot of social ills and i think not only is that a disgusting sort of portrayal of what cider is at its heart and its core or can be I do like the idea if we can help shift the perception of cider away from some of the harm it can cause towards something better so um, the tasting itself the summer tasting will be a chance to taste a selection of ciders like has I mean never really been had in one single instance in London I I won't even have tasted all of them in one go actually to be honest and for anyone in particularly the trade side the press everything else it will give an idea of the map the spectrum of possibilities the array of what is being made by the most refined kind of aspirational makers and i think it you know it's it's a chance to do that in just a space of a few hours it's a chance to do that with the the drink poured by the maker who can answer any questions and so i hope it's something that's an ongoing concern it's just been quite a natural result of what these drinks are and how to show that they are seasonal how to show them to people how to let all of the sommeliers the buyers everyone else taste and choose thank you so much Felix for your time and your cider and perry up on your roof as ever all of the contact details for the fine cider company are below I think today's episode is a great example of how podcasts can be used to tell the history and evolution of drinks producing regions. I'm currently looking to connect with regions who might be interested in using podcasts to tell their story. If you or anyone you know might be interested, you can contact me. My email is hello at interpretingwine.com or my Instagram is at interpreting wine. See you next time.